Hey, everybody. So this summer, there will be two separate broods of cicadas that will be popping up in the Midwest. If you remember, cicadas are insects that normally live underground, but on a regular cycle, they will emerge from the ground in order to procreate. Most cicadas do this on either a 13-year cycle or a 17-year cycle. This summer, there will be two different broods of cicadas, brood 13 and brood 19, that although they are on different cycles, one's on a 13-year cycle, one's on a 17-year cycle, they are both overlapping this year. And so if you happen to live in Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, you are bound to be seeing a lot of bugs this summer. So to get us prepared for this event, we are replaying an episode from 2021 all about cicadas. This is the 17-year itch. Enjoy. From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that needs to be cranked up so that you can hear us over the cicadas. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is The 17-Year Itch. Hey, Chad. Good afternoon, Michael. So I, I've been reading in the newspaper, apparently this is a special year for a certain insect. Mm, it's always a special year for insects, I think. Oh. But yeah, the big story people might have heard about is the emergence of these periodical cicadas. Specifically, there's a brood X, X being the Roman numeral for 10. Oh, Check. so it is a number. It's not just that these are the extreme <laughs> right. cicadas. They all emerge with like a, a bag of Doritos and a Mountain Dew. <laughs> yeah. Doing a click kick flip. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's just their brood number 10. That's all. So there are at least 10 of these things then? There are at least 10. Yeah, there are a couple of dozen, actually. Hmm. And the interesting thing about a lot of these periodical cicadas is the periodical part. And that period between major emergences for this particular brood, brood 10, is 17 years. Wow. So think about that. The last time this particular population that all emerges at the same time had a major emergence. It would have been, let's see, 2021 minus 17. What is that? 2004. 2004 checks out. So let's see, Bush was president. I was still in grad school. I was all pepper, no salt. (laughs) My my facial hair was all pepper, no salt. God, 2004. Yeah. I would have been a postdoc. And I mean, if you think about everything that's happened in just 17 years, two additional presidencies and everything else. That's an amazing long time. Yeah. And you and I both grew up in areas with periodical cicadas. You can find a map online. Mm -hmm. And what you'll see is that this brood X is one of a couple of dozen different broods. And these different broods all have different emergence patterns. And so where I grew up in Southeast Central Kansas is brood number four. And I remember a couple of summers when I was still living in Kansas, when it happened. So that would have been 1998 was a big emergence. And then 1981 was a big emergence. So I was like, remember a summer when I was a about the same age as my middle kid, when the summer was just ridiculously loud. Mm. I remember these. They made a big impression on me. Hmm. Well, so let's back up just real quick. So cicadas are, yes. as you said, these insects that only come out after long periods of time, but it's it's yeah. not a cyclical thing. So this particular ones that we're going to talk about today, they come out every 17 years, mm-hmm. but there are others that come out 13 years or, or something like that. Yeah. And 
primarily they're located in the eastern part of the United States. That's right. So there are, yeah, as you say, there are 17-year cicadas, 13-year cicadas, but there are also annual cicadas as well. Hmm. Okay. So maybe we should just talk about what a cicada is as an insect to begin with. Let's do that, Um, yeah. So they are pretty large-bodied insects, maybe an inch or inch and a half big. They have membranous, really rigid wings. They have big, bulgy multifaceted eyes on either side. And if you kind of look at the front of their face, they have this really cool, I always think it looks kind of like one of those old timey microphones or or maybe like, what is that little thing that the supervillain in Batman Bane, Bane, you know, has in his mouth? It sort of looks like this thing on the front of their face. Yeah. And they are related. They're in the same group of insects as other things such as aphids, for example. So can you squeeze their abdomen and then drink sugar water out of the rear ends? No, no, these wouldn't really do that for you. This entire I'll have to cut that because nobody knows that that you grossed me out so much by... (laughs) That's a deep cut. And I did it, I did it. Yeah. We were with students and and you're like, here's some aphid here. And you squeezed out and you're like, see... Mm, it's tasty. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'll play along because, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to discourage the students from learning something, but yeah, it scarred me a little bit. So anyway, yeah. I'm sorry. So those are <laughs> okay. aphids, which are related to yeah. the cicadas, but not, not totally. All right. Yeah. And this entire group of insects makes its living by sinking its mouth parts, which are sort of in the shape of a really long, sharp straw down into the fluids of a plant. And Hmm. so some groups sink their mouth parts down into the phloem of the plant, which are these vessels within the plant that carry around the sugary water. That's the result of photosynthesis. So that would be the phloem sap. Like if you've ever had maple syrup, that's basically what you're having on your pancakes is phloem Hmm. sap. But then there's also xylem, which are a, an entirely different set of vessels within the plant that carry around water, typically moving from the soil into the roots and then up through the stems and to the leaves. And so it's the xylem sap that the cicadas actually make their living on. And so the juveniles spend all this time, multiple years underground, just nestled right up next to the root of a plant with their mouth parts down into the xylem tubes, just drinking that xylem. Hmm. You can imagine that this is water that's basically just come from the soil into the plant. And by the time it gets into the root where they might be consuming it, probably hasn't picked up a whole lot of nutrients at that point. And so it's a really nutrient poor kind of diet to persist on. And so they actually cycle through a lot of the xylem just to extract out enough usable nutrients from what is really mostly water. So consequently, they are excreting a whole lot of water out of their back end. And that kind of keeps the soil around them kind of moist. And is that a good thing to have the soil moist? Yeah, it makes it a little bit more pliable. And so that the roots can continue to grow and spread. And, and so they can kind of move around a little bit. So the insect itself can kind of move around a little bit, keeps them from drying out. So they spend their juvenile years just doing that, just feeding on the plant roots. And then after 17 or 13 years in the spring, the final juvenile stage will start to dig a tunnel up to the surface. And if you live in an area where these cicadas are going to emerge, what you might do is kind of just go out in the woods where there might be this emergence. And if you pay attention, you might start to see these tiny little tunnels opening up 
down into the ground. And sometimes you'll see like a little rim of soil that looks like it's been kind of pushed up from the ground and making a little crater almost around a hole going down into the ground. So they'll dig their exit tunnels Mm -hmm. in the weeks leading up to their emergence. And then eventually after there have been enough warm days that the soil has warmed up sufficiently, but it's not too dry yet, that will kind of be the cue when they'll all start emerging. And so they're in their final juvenile stage And if you've ever seen this, you know that what they look like by the husks that they leave behind, right? They've got these really big sort of graspy, shovely looking front legs that look really great for moving through the soil, which which they are. And so those final stage juveniles crawl up out of the ground, crawl over to a tree, start moving up the trunk, and then somewhere up in the tree, they will do their final molt into the adult. And that's when the wings are revealed and the adult animal emerges. Takes Hmm. a couple of days for their exoskeleton to kind of harden up and then for them to be ready. And then they're ready to start finding love. Hmm. So this is like their their big spring break. They're 17 years old and they're ready to party. Spring break isn't exactly the right metaphor. It's sort of like the retirement home right? Like if after a lifetime of work, then the big party was at the very end at the retirement home. And that's where all the mating happened. Hmm. All right. Be- all right. So we got to back up here though, because yeah. I normally think that bugs live days. So 17 years, that seems like a really long time for a bug in my limited knowledge base here. It is a very long time for an insect. Yeah, that's true. Even a lot of times you'll hear things said about, oh, mayflies only live for, you know, a few days days or something, three days. Well, no, that's not entirely true. They live for over a year. It's just that most of that year is spent as a juvenile in a stream. Mm. And, And so then the final adult phase of many insects is relatively short. That's certainly true. But often the juvenile phases are considerably longer. And in many insects, it's the juvenile phase in which they make it through the winter. Hmm. And they're pretty often inconspicuous below ground or burrowed into some wood. And so we don't see them very much. Now, when they're in the juvenile phase, these cicadas that we're talking about, do they move around like from tree to tree or do they find a tree and that's their tree for all seven? years? Well, any moving around that they might do would be underground. And it wouldn't surprise me to learn that perhaps, you know, if they spend a lot of time on this one particular tree and its roots, if there were the roots of another tree also nearby, I could see them perhaps ending up on that other tree possibly as well, just in sort of like looking for a little bit more root space. But what they don't do is come up to the surface and do any sort of dispersal on the surface. Mm -hmm. So anything they would do would be completely underground. So if you chop down a tree, Mm -hmm. then basically all those juvenile cicada are probably... Yeah, they're goners, unless they're able to find some roots of another living tree that's nearby. Okay. Yeah, but like if you clear cut a really large swath, then everybody in there would be dead. So we mentioned the idea of the broods. So how were these broods named? It's probably really dumb and easy. Like, oh, you know, we found these first and then we saw these over here. I, my memory is that that's how it was. That brood number one was the first one that was reliably characterized. And then brood number two was the second one. And so they just kind of 
accumulated these names as they were discovered. And so consequently, the map of where these broods exist across the uh, eastern and midwestern United States is sort of just a jumble of them all kind of mixed Mm. together. So there are dozens of broods, you know, let's say that there are 17 broods that all have a 17 year cycle. Wouldn't that mean that like every summer there's a different brood that is doing this? Yeah, most years have a brood that's going to emerge. It's just that some of them are relatively small or restricted in their geographic range. Hmm. The thing that everybody is excited about this particular year is that brood 10 is pretty widely distributed geographically. It's in some very populous states, so a lot of people will experience it. So like mm-hmm. it's from New York through Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Tennessee, North Carolina, right? So a large fraction of the U.S. population will be within earshot of it. And the ones that I experienced growing up are much more locally distributed. Now, do they look different or are they? No, uh-uh. they look the same. So, so how do they get into this then? I mean, so you said that there are some that do this every year. You also hit, hinted at like mayflies and stuff. That seems mm-hmm. perhaps a normal thing, I guess. So then how did these guys decide, eh, I'm happy just hanging out for 17 years and then then I'll get up and do this? Yeah, it's, it is a crazy long time, especially for such a small animal. I think the first thing to realize to kind of understand how these came to be The first thing to realize is that in the things called annual cicadas, these are the cicadas that emerge every single year, even in annual cicadas, they have a multi-year lifespan. Hmm. So when you see an annual cicada, that adult annual cicada is probably somewhere between two and five years old because it will spend two, three, four, maybe up to five years as a juvenile underground. The difference is that in the annual cicadas, every single year, some subset of them emerge and mate and produce offspring that then go down and now they're very young juveniles. And Mm. then the older juveniles are getting ready and then they'll emerge the next year. Mm. And so it's not the case that everybody emerges every year. It's some subset emerges every year but they still, all of them have multi-year lifespans. And so if we're getting to something like a 17-year periodical cicada, the starting point is already sort of a little ways down that path because we've already got an animal that has a juvenile phase feeding on roots underground for multiple years. So the next thing then is something that can favor this massive synchronized emergence event. And so one idea about what might have slowed down the development time from say three, four, five years to almost two decades Mm -hmm. is there's some evidence that these periodical cicadas probably arose a couple million years ago in the Pleistocene ice ages. That's what I figured. Yeah. And so as this region of North America was getting colder, these are ectothermic animals. And so their physiological processes are greatly influenced by the temperature, which mm-hmm. just slows down their physiology. And so as the climate cooled during the Pleistocene, it just put the brakes on their rate of development. And then add to that the selective force of predators eating these cicadas when they emerged. 
Well, let me back up for just a second. Did have you ever encountered these? Like, did you ever encounter these when you were a kid and like try to pick them up or anything? No, I never tried picking them up. They're kind I, of I did intim- have to scrape them off my car <laughs> one summer. They're kind of intimidating because they're they're really loud. And if mm-hmm. you you like clap your hands over them, you know, and you've got one in your hands, they like flap their wings and they've got these sort of grippy legs on them. And they feel like they're kind of grabbing onto you and they're making a lot of loud noise. And it's it, but the thing is, they're totally harmless. Mm. <laughs> they're completely harmless. You could like pop it in your mouth and eat it and be you'd be totally fine. They can't hurt you. No, thanks, Chad. No pass. <laughs> okay. So they can't hurt you in Fool any me way. Once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. A lot of animals that are just sort of generalist insectivore omnivores will eat them. So lots of different kinds of birds, rodents, and they're delicious, completely Mm -hmm. undefended and a nice big morsel that a lot of things would eat. And so consequently, there's really strong predation pressure on them. And so by emerging all at the same time, it creates a situation where instead of a few thousand, most of which get picked off, there are millions to billions of them. Mm -hmm. And the predators eat as many as they possibly can until they're satiated. And there are still millions to billions of them. And so as an individual, by emerging at the same time as everybody else, your chances of getting picked off by a predator are minuscule Mm. relative to if you emerged a year early or a year late Mm -hmm. when your chances of getting picked off by a predator are basically certain because you're so poorly defended. You're just this loud, big, chunky thing that lots of things like to eat. So there's Mm. this really, really strong selection for a really narrow emergence window resulting in everybody emerging at the same time. Hmm. Okay. All right. So we were talking about how there might be a selection for all of them to come out at the same time. Yeah. For at least a couple of reasons. Number one, if you screw up and you come out a year early, or if you screw up and you come out a year late, you're likely going to be food. That's thing number one. And thing number two, even if you don't get eaten, there's probably not going to be anybody around for you to mate with. Mm. So there's really strong selection on whatever the mechanism is for them to get the timing right. Yeah. But so why 13 and 17 years then? You said others are like two to five years or whatever, but, but why they don't emerge they just annually? Yeah. Right. They emerge annually, but their life cycle is two to five years. So yeah, it's like they were going through and looking at for prime numbers or something up to 20 and they found a couple and one idea about that. So there, there are 13 year periodical cicadas and there are 17 year periodical cicadas. A couple ideas about that. The first is that both of those are long enough that they outlast predator population cycles. So if they were considerably shorter and there's this huge emergence of cicadas, which allowed for the growth of a predator population, and then a relatively short period of time again later, there was another huge emergence of cicadas. There might still be a lot of predators around, which would result in an even larger portion of those cicadas getting eaten, right? But- Hmm. 13 years, 17 years, that's kind of long enough where any sort of little predator population boom created by this additional resource is probably going to have petered out by then. Oh, right. So you're saying that during this year, there's going to be a whole lot of birds that are just going to feast. There's going to be lots and lots of food. 
So then next year there will be lots and lots of birds and then after there won't be as much food. So they're going right. to. It's kind of interesting how it creates kind of follow on consequences for other members of the food web. Right. And so hmm. birds, for example, typically will lay a couple or more additional eggs than they can possibly hope to fledge. So like maybe the two parents working together can successfully fledge two chicks, right? Okay. They'll still lay like five or six eggs. Hmm. And you're like, why would you do that? Well, for starters, it guards against having like a defective egg. Mm -hmm. But the other thing it does is on the off chance that there is a bonanza year, like a periodical cicada emergence year or some other kind of big influx of resources in a given year, now suddenly they can actually raise a couple of additional chicks. And so hmm. by laying those extra eggs, they're then positioned to actually take advantage of a surplus resource year like this is going hmm. to be for them. Yeah, so they're gonna be a lot of extra birds. <laughs> Yeah, And then there are going to be a lot of extra hungry birds in the following year. Interesting. Yeah. But then the question I suppose is like, well, why 13 and 17? Why not like 10 and 15? And it turns out that 13 and 17 would result in the overlap of the emergence of both 13-year cicadas and 17-year cicadas at the same time only every 221 years, mm -hmm. multiply 13 and 17. Other kinds of combinations would have an overlap in the emergence of the two kinds of cicadas more frequently than that. Oh, see, I thought, I mean, you mentioned something about them being prime numbers, and I thought you were just making a joke that cicadas care about mathematical idiosyncrasies like that. But okay, so, so you're saying, though, that this actually makes sure that those two broods are not going to be out at the same time and ruin all the resources all at the same time. And they don't overlap with any sort of meaningful frequency hmm. when other combinations would overlap more. Hmm. Then it's like, well, why not do 13 year and 23 year or 17 year and 23 year? And then probably starting to get perhaps beyond the maximal lifespan that even something like this can get to kind of bumps up against what's physiological feasible for the thing to do. And then you need like a quantum computer to figure out what all the prime numbers are. <laughs> yeah, right. There are a couple of timing aspects to this story that are kind of interesting. The first is how do they know when to emerge within the appropriate year? So like if everybody else is going to come out between May 15th and June 1st, you don't want to wait until June 30th sure. because everybody will be dead by then, right? And so there are environmental cues that they're paying attention to that they can detect down under the ground that allow them to all synchronize when within the appropriate year they emerge. And so it seems to be the case that once the temperature is reliably in the mid 60s and the ground is still moist though, then a few days of that, and then you'll start seeing them starting to dribble out and then, mm. and you'll start hearing them. There was an interesting experiment where these researchers manipulated the trees that they knew some periodical cicadas would be on. They manipulated the trees in a way that it changed the seasonal timing that the trees experienced through time. Okay. And that actually 
caused the cicadas to emerge at a time other than when they normally would have. Oh, I see. So the the tree itself, in the springtime, it's making its blooms, its blossoms, mm-hmm. it's growing leaves and doing all those yeah. things and getting active again. Okay. Yeah. And so there's something that the cicadas are paying attention to that they can detect about the trees. That undoubtedly changes the quality of the xylem that they're experiencing. And so there's an environmental cue, even far underground, where you're not going to be getting any sort of light cues. There's no way that they could be paying attention to hours of daylight. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's something about the trees that they're paying attention to. But that's just the when should we emerge from the ground in the appropriate year? The much, I think, more difficult question is how do they keep track of 17 years? Right. But then how are they counting? Well, the just check marks, I would guess, <laughs> right. on the root. Right. Yeah. Putting a little line up on the root. Yep. Yeah. You know, one, two, three, four slash one, two, three, four slash. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. yeah, exactly. Well, The molecular equivalent to that, we call a molecular clock, and it's been proposed, but I'm not aware of anybody who's actually sussed out what the actual genes are and what the specific molecules are that make up this molecular clock. But in general terms, a molecular clock is this innate mechanism that living things have, where in general, kind of how it operates is that there will be the buildup of some translated protein through times that happens at a certain rate, Mm. right? And so you get the accumulation of this product, this protein at a certain rate. And then once enough of that particular protein builds up in the cell or in an organ or in the body, then it initiates kind of a cascade of turning on or off other genes, Mm -hmm. which themselves might initiate some other cascade resulting in a change in the physiology of the organism. And so it's, have you ever seen like those little water clocks where like water is dripping into a little basin and the basin gets heavy enough and it sort of dips down and kind of dumps out the water. And then the other part of the levers ticks a little, like a little tick on the clock or something. Mm -hmm. Right. I always think about it kind of like that. So anyway, those kinds of things are very common and relatively well worked out in a number of other kinds of organisms. So like this controls everything from like an animal becoming wakeful after having been asleep or an animal coming out of hibernation Mm. or an animal moving on to the next developmental stage and emerging from the ground, like in this case. And so I think most entomologists would argue that there is some sort of molecular clock like this in operation. Hmm. But I think there probably still needs to be some research to figure out what specifically the genes are that are involved and what molecules are that are involved. Hmm. But it is probably calibrated by the environmental cues, like what's going on with the tree. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, so the most characteristic thing that people experience from these little animals is their noise. So if you are fortunate enough to be living in an area where the brood 10 is emerging or some other coming year when other broods are emerging, it's really breathtaking how loud these things are. Now, is that just a factor of kind of like all the little who's in Whoville, when they shouted all at once, then, you know, things could hear them. <laughs> Not a single voice was particularly loud, but all of them together, working together was was audible. You, yeah, there's probably the chorus aspect must contribute to it. And so as if you are fortunate enough to 
live where these animals are doing this this year, it's perhaps interesting to contemplate what's actually going on. It won't help you sleep at night, but as you're not sleeping, <laughs> you can just ponder. <laughs> right. Well, at least I know how that sounds being made. Yeah. You know, a lot of animals, a lot of insects make lots of different kinds of sounds like crickets and grasshoppers. And, but those are a little bit different than how cicadas make their sounds. So if you look on the body of a cicada, in the segment of the body right behind the wings on both the right and the left side, you find these little organs called timbles. Okay. Basically, it, it looks kind of like a little comb. And this is a portion of the exoskeleton. And so on the inside, if you were to do a cross section, you would see that each one of those little tines of the comb is connected to muscles on the inside that sort of form a V going from where those comb-like structures are making up the exterior of the body down and towards the middle of the body. And so if you, one of those muscles contracts, what it actually takes one of the tines of the comb and flexes it. Have you ever seen those little dog clicker trainer things? It's just sort of like a little short piece of metal and you push the metal with your thumb and it, it makes sort of like a click. Yeah. It's a, like a little piece of metal but it's also associated like with a little cupped piece of plastic around it that serves to amplify the sound, right? So that little piece of metal, it's, it's like bent a little bit in one direction. So you press it down and yeah, it kind of pops. Click. Yeah. So it's just, it's just the buckling of that little piece of metal that makes this audible click. All right. But then you couple it with a little something that's going to refract the sound waves. And then we can actually really hear it. Mm. That's what's happening with each of these tiny little tines of the timble is when the muscle tugs on it, it causes that little bit of exoskeleton to buckle. And mm. it makes a little each little tiny click is one of those little tines of the comb buckling. So that's sort of analogous to the little piece of metal on the dog clicker mm -hmm. being bent. And then the overall shape of the body the hollow shape of the body is analogous to that little amplifier associated with the dog clicker. So that is what makes it much more audible, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of like in the same way, like if you think about a solid little block of wood and hitting it with a drumstick, you'd be able to hear that. But if it were a hollow block of wood, you'd be able to hear that in the next room. Right. And so the hollowness of the body contributes to the amplification of the sound as well. It allows the sound to kind of bounce around and yeah. amplify with itself and yeah. interfere constructively and stuff. Okay. It's interesting you, you mentioned the constructive interference. That was actually relatively recently discovered that that's actually going on. And so the way... They the should way have asked happened, the physicists like years ago. I know, I know, <laughs> I know right? This, yeah, they should always bring a physicist on board. <laughs> so that's how they get so damn loud. Wow. Unfortunately, we don't have any periodical cicadas out here in Oregon. If we have any if listeners in like the Brood 10 zone... They should um, post an Make audio recordings. file. Yeah, post an audio file to Facebook, our, our Facebook page, and let us know. Yeah, I would love to hear that in that short little burst, you know? Yeah. Not not for the weeks on end that they yeah, don't hear yeah, it. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'll, I'll just put it on a loop and play it <laughs> continuously. Yeah, please, listeners, if, if you can get recordings of this, that would be awesome to hear it. 
This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodi Ortega wrote our theme music. Kathleen Spring posted all of our old episodes up, up onto Digital Commons so that anybody can listen to the entire back catalog. If you have a question or an idea for a future episode, you should email us at crisscrossingside at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or contact us on Facebook and we'll happily respond there as well. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.